All right, so welcome everyone to this, um, to interview the author platform. My name is uh, Benjamin Tringrove, and today we've got an exciting guest, Dr. John Demartini. Um, you're going to get an information overload, but it's going to be well worth it uh, today. So interview the, uh, interview the author platform was born out of actually after attending one of um, John's seminars, the Breakthrough Experience. So it goes to show how powerful it was, at least for me. And uh, over my entrepreneurial journey of the last six, seven years, books have been in a huge part of my development, both personally and professionally. So I wanted to kind of give back by how do I get into the minds of the authors that write these amazing books? So if there's any other kind of secrets, tips, tricks that we can help other entrepreneurs on their journey um, and, and scale their growth. So uh, today, I'm, and, and you'll also see below this video, another interview that I've done with um, Dr. John Demartini, where it's a big introdu introduction about his background, things like this. So I'm not going to dive too deep into, um, into John's background, although I will get him to have a little bit of an introduction of himself. And then we'll get into some Q&A at the end as well. So again, thank you very much, John, for, uh, for being here today. No, thank you. So... Um, so John, again, my audience is uh, typically more towards the entrepreneurs. And before, um, before kind of diving into some specific questions, if you wouldn't mind just elaborate, elaborating a little bit more on, so today we're gonna to talk more around, I've got a few of your books, but around Inspired Destiny. Now, I believe it was the, uh, um, I won't say watered down version, because that's not the right word, it's the, uh, the breakthrough experience. <laughs> more towards kids and teenagers. Is that correct? That was what Inspired Destiny was targeted towards? Originally, uh, I was doing seminars called Inspired, well, Young Adults Inspired Destiny Program. And it was primarily for teens and early 20-year-olds to increase the probability of taking command of their lives, becoming entrepreneurs, and giving themselves permission to create the goals and dreams and objectives that they really would dream about not being subordinate to the world around you as a conformist, but as a, as an innovator, as a person that makes the difference that led to recording that program numerous times and extracting content from that recording into a book. <clears throat> so it wasn't me sitting down and actually writing out the book. I had written out the outline of the course we transcribed the course and then edited it into a book. So that's how it started. But we tweaked it in the editing to make sure it was a broad enough audience so it wasn't limited to teens. It was really from anybody who has a dream to be an entrepreneur. Now, I have the opportunity today to have numerous young, under 20-year-old entrepreneurs as clients, <clears throat> which is quite uh, unique because uh, I can't say that that historically had been my thing, but I, I have uh, a 12, 13 year old girl who's uh, already a professional speaker. I have a 11 year old girl that owns a, a significant fashion company, uh, two teenagers that are already in the fashion and music and industry and acting industry that are doing very well in the, in the millions. And so we were, we were trying to inspire young people to take command early because many people are, particularly with the social media industry. Mm. So that's how it started. And that's, uh, but it's really, I don't think anybody, I think more adults 
and parents who have read that book um, were, were blown away because they thought it was for their for their teens, but it's really for anybody, any age who wants to be an entrepreneur or just wants to take command of their life. Yeah, yeah, of course. And because the, the breakthrough experience, and we'll talk a little bit there, but, but later on, it does go very deep into more of the, I guess you'd call it the science behind it, whereas Inspired Destiny is a very, very easy read, but packed full of great information. And it's great that you just brought up the, the girl that you mentioned before, because I, I actually, you, you gave a talk in South Africa, public talk, maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe a month now, and um, I reached out to Brian and Rhonda and uh, wanted to have Honolay on this show as well because she's obviously um, done amazing things. So Honolay Swan, is, she's done fantastic. So um, let's start with, I, had, I actually had two days ago, I had on the show um, Mark Goulston, Dr. Mark Goulston. I'm not too sure if you're familiar with his, his, um, his books and his materials, but it was very interesting um, Dr. Martini, now going through a lot of your work, I won't say you've, you've, you've ruined it for me, but it's very interesting and, and difficult for me to listen to, not listen, but um, gain other people's perspectives on human behavior and psychology because I, ha I still haven't, uh, after four, five, six years, haven't found anything that quite cuts through the noise as much as your stuff. So I just wanted to put that in there. But we, we started by talking around procrastination and now because my audience is the, the entrepreneur type, some of them are either just starting out or some of them are um, coming from a nine to five into the entrepreneurship world. I just want to um, break through perhaps some fantasies here as well as some things people struggle with. And one of the big ones that people struggle with is around procrastination. So I'm not too sure if you want to go into something like values now, but what, what's, how do you get through things like procrastination? Well, Every individual, regardless of age, gender, or culture, has a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are more to least important in their life. And um, whatever is highest on their value, they're spontaneously inspired from within, intrinsically driven from within, to be disciplined, reliable, and focused in getting it done. But what, as you go down the list of priorities or values, <clears throat> you require more extrinsic motivation to get you to do it. So that's where you'll procrastinate, hesitate, and frustrate because it's not really as important as you might imagine. So when people tell me I, I keep procrastinating, I keep uh, you know, not doing it, I keep sabotaging, the real truth is it's very simple. It's not as high on their values as they might imagine. And many times they have a fantasy of what they think is important, but they aren't doing it because there are other things that are more important to them. And they think it should be important, but what it should be is, is an outer injected value from others. Inside them, their values are going to dictate their destiny and their, their decisions and their priorities, their actions. And so you have to know what your real values are to know why you're not doing something. Because I'll give you an example. <clears throat> I ask people by the thousands, millions, how many of you would like to be financially independent? And as you would imagine, every hand goes up. I mean, 99 to 100% of all the hands around the world go up. I've, I've been in front of thousands of people and audiences, and they all go up. Mm. And I said, uh, now, how many of you are financially independent? And it, they all go down, most of them. Uh, I mean, I was in front of 5,000 people, and only seven were with their hands up when I asked them how many were fin truly financially independent. And so what happens is people have a fantasy, an un 
realize an unrealistic expectation on themselves to be doing something that isn't really highest on their value. And that is a sure guaranteed self-depreciation and procrastination. Because when you set a goal, and if it's not aligned to what you value most, you're going to hesitate, frustrate, and procrastinate on doing it. Because you're going to have other things that are more important that you keep going to. Like I'm a, I have a high value on researching and teaching. So if, if somebody comes up and says, well, let's go work out in the gym. Um, I'll do brief workouts here in my hotel room um, and on my ship, but I, I don't go to the gym that often. It's just not my thing. So if I have an expectation for me to start going to the gym and working out and doing all that, um, I'm going to procrastinate. I'm going to come up with things that keep being more important. I'm not going to get around to doing it because it's not highest on my values. And I've spent my life delegating anything low on my values so I can stick to the things that are highest, which raise the self-worth and net worth. And so I do what I love doing. <clears throat> and people many times are confused about what they value. They have a fantasy about what they think it is, but their life demonstrates what it truly is. So you have to set goals that are truly aligned and congruent with what you truly have high on your values if you want to not beat yourself up thinking you're procrastinating. But I've not seen anybody procrastinate on their highest value. I see people procrastinating on what they think is highest, but it's actually lower on their value list. Yeah. And that's a perfect um, <clears throat> to kind of transition into whether people think they're procrastinating in, in the game because it's not highest on their values. But another big one, <clears throat> of, so I'm 29 and I call my generation, is sometimes we get referred to as the modicoddled generation or the self-entitlement generation. But um, because of social, not because of social media, but in social media has enhanced the whole comparison and um, creating these fantasies are just out of control because they see people on social media with maybe they've rented a Lamborghini because it's marketing or they've got stacks of cash on the bed or whatever it happens to be. And this is setting up some, some pretty uh, biggest, as you say, the bigger the fantasy, the bigger the nightmare. So how do you, how do people, um, how, how do people even know if they've set up a fantasy or if they're actually living into a fantasy? Like how do people even know if they're chasing a fantasy? Well, there are a number of things you can do. Number one, if you can't anticipate as many drawbacks as there are benefits, and if you don't have a mitigated risk strategy to handle those drawbacks equal to the number of benefits, then you have a fantasy. A fantasy by definition is something that you perceive as having more advantages and disadvantages, more positives and negatives. Mm. And, and, and I, I use an analogy. Let's say you are a guy and you're single and, um, or married acting single, and you see this really hot, uh, you know, lovely girl. And at first you think, wow, she's amazing and you're attracted to her. Now, at first, you're gonna be a little infatuated and you're gonna assume that there's more upsides and downsides, more positives and negatives, more pleasures and pains. And then what you do is you start to pursue them and you start to date them. And gradually over a period of time, it could be days, weeks, or months, maybe years, <clears throat> if you're really slow, uh, you'll discover that this person has little picadillos, little challenging behaviors that eventually start to irk you and eventually discover that there's some downsides to this person. And sometimes because of that, uh, you feel that you've been betrayed or you feel that, you know, they're not who you thought or, <clears throat> but in fact, they have both sides. There's no such thing as a one-sided person. 
So now you think, oh, they're not who I thought. And then you go off to the next fantasy. You try to find another person that you actually think is going to give you 51% more positives and negatives. But there isn't. Every person has that, that nice pair of opposites. So the same thing with goals. Many people get swayed by their impulse center in their amygdala, the nucleus accumbens, which is involved in impulses and seeking a pleasure hedonistically. And we sometimes get a subjective bias and distort what we think is about to happen, blind ourselves with this bias and not see things as they are, but we see things as we hope and fantasize that they will be. And then we get blinded by it. And then when we actually get confronted by the downsides and challenges, we're unprepared and we have to learn through hindsight instead of foresight. And the whole purpose of the executive center, the forebrain, is to strategically plan ahead. And the purpose of strategic planning is to make sure that we see both sides of an event in advance and take the side that's a challenging or negative and find out and mitigate them by strategies to be able to prepare for them so we're not hit broadside, we're prepared in advance. People who pursue challenges that inspire them do far better than people who are waiting and get hit by challenges that despire them. So fantasy is a one-sided positive without a negative outcome. Doesn't exist, never will exist. People think that there's going to get get rich uh, schemes quick that way. They think that there's going to be a happy, you know, relationship without challenges. And these delusions set people up and people deserve to be smacked hard to get the lesson. So that's one. The second one is uh, something that doesn't really match your real value. So you go in there and you meet somebody and you think, wow, they're amazing. I think I'm going to do that. And you envy them and try to imitate them, but it's not really, their values are different than yours. And you're trying to live outside your values, inside theirs. That's a recipe for disaster because you can't be somebody else because you're making decisions by your values. They're making decisions by theirs. And you'll, you'll try to fight yourself inside internally with conflict. Another one you can hear, the sign that you know you've done that, is you'll hear inside your head statements that are imperatives. You'll hear I should have done this. I ought to be doing this. I need to be doing this. I got to do this. I have to do this. I must do this. You know, and anytime you hear imperative language, which is extrinsically driven and it's from outside authorities, you guaranteed you're trying to do something that's not you. The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself from people you compare yourself to. We're not here to compare ourselves to others and put them on pedestals and put ourselves in pits and then self depreciate wondering what's wrong with us. And then we wonder why we procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate. Mm. We're here to compare our daily actions to our own highest values and maximize the congruency and a more refined ratio of congruency in our daily life. Living by what is truly inspired and meaningful, spontaneous within us that serves the greatest number of people. That's the recipe for making things really amazing. That's the recipe for an entrepreneur that's going to go places. Mm. Mm. Important <clears throat> point there is... Say someone's working their nine to five and are you, are you saying that they've finished at five o'clock, they've come home, they've wound down, whatever it is that they do or throughout the day and they're going, oh man, I'm, when I get home, I've got to do this or I've got to create this marketing piece or oh, I've got to ring this client or so is that all a sign that they're not really living congruently with their values because it's more like I have to, you know, even though they want this business, they want to be an entrepreneur, they're still using this imperative language. In 1983, I started doing a lot of consulting for health professionals. So this is back a ways. And um, 
in those days when I would go into doctor's offices, particularly, I would listen carefully to the language of the, the people working there. And I would look at what was on the books as far as business for the day. And then I would look at throughout the day, what the business did. Did it go up? Did it stabilize? Did it go down? And, um, I saw a very clear correlation between the language that was in the audience, the, 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 the people working there, the employees, and the result. When people said, oh, I love it, I love it, I love it, oh, I'm inspired by it, so grateful to get to do this, this is what I love doing, mm. or this is what I really have chosen as a calling in my life, this is what I, I just, this is what I do, I just I can't think of anything else I'd rather do, and this is really what I, my highest desire is to go and be great at this. The business goes up and it accelerates. When they said want to, well, I want to do that, it's kind of more mediocre and the business flattens. And if they say, I, I need to, I should, ought to, supposed to, and I got to and have to and must, the business goes down. Mm. We saw that consistently enough to start recording the details of the, the proportions of what it went up and down. And I created a little formula for that based on language. Because there's what is called imperative language and indicative language. And imperative language is a language like got to, have to, must. I mean, you're not inspired to do it. You feel like you're obligated to do it. Mm. I got to do it. I have to do it. I have to pay my taxes. I got to pay my bills. Anything that you are fighting with a friction and a break on inside yourself, you're not going to excel at. So that's why you want to always ask. And you want to make sure, because many people think they want to be entrepreneurs. But I, what I find is they'll bog down if they're doing things in the entrepreneurial job description that is uninspiring to them, they'll bog down. Like I love researching, writing, traveling, and teaching, but I don't want to do the administrative work and hiring and managing the the day-to-day -day grind stuff. That's not for me. I did that when I was in the, in the 80s, but I let go of that by 1984. I delegated that away. So I love that part of the business that I am great at but I don't want to do the things that are not. I'd rather hire somebody who is highly engaged, inspired, and congruent with those actions and find somebody that who, when they get to do that, that turns them on. And so by delegating that to other people and giving them the freedom to do what they love, I'm liberated from micromanaging and having to push people uphill to go do what I love. And as long as what I love produces more income, then I can easily delegate that away and get inspired. And that way I can't wait to go to work every day. So I won't procrastinate on the things highest on my values or on the job descriptions that are congruent with my highest values. Mm -hmm. I won't procrastinate there. I love doing it and I'll get up and do them because anything you love doing, you spontaneously do just like a guy is 12 years old and loves video games. Nobody has to motivate him or remind him to do his video games, but they may have to remind him to do his homework, his chores and his cleaning of his room. Because that's something he's got to do, he has to do, he's got to do it. So he's going to procrastinate on it. So the, the ratio of congruency between your actions and your highest value will determine the momentum building actions that inspire or procrastination, hesitation, frustration. So mm -hmm. the key is to know what your highest values are and to make sure that you're either delegating the things that aren't congruent with that or linking those actions to what's highest on your value temporarily until you can delegate it. Hmm. So that's by asking how specifically is doing this action temporarily until I can find somebody to delegate that. How is doing this temporarily going to help me fulfill my mission and answer that question 30, 40 times. So your brain neuroplastically sees that as on the way, not in the way you won't procrastinate anymore. Hmm. 
and, and I was glad you brought that up because I was about to ask you ask you that part because I can't tell you how many people that I have heard of over the years they'll have that first part that you mentioned but not about the part that when you can't afford to hire someone yet and you can't afford to outsource it how can you at least try and be inspired or see it on the way rather in the way and that's such a massive part especially for someone that is transitioning into entrepreneurship or a solopreneur and they don't have the funds and they are kind of having to do everything for themselves so for people watching this that is a there's a real key takeaway that dr Martini is talking about uh, <coughs> linking those action items to your highest values and, and we'll touch on values a little bit more in the end uh, where you can go and do the value determination exercise um, and so you can so you can leave here and actually take action in knowing um, how to discover your values. Let, let, can I share some? I, I I read a book in 1983 called The Time Trap by Alec McKenzie, and there's a new version out now. I like the old version; it seems simpler. But it was um, it was a milestone in my journey as an entrepreneur because. I, I saw all of the pitfalls that I was falling into with my delegation. I, I thought that I had to do it because I was better at it. I thought I had to do it because I knew more about it. I thought by the time I could teach them how to do it, I could have done it. I had all the different, you might say, obstacles to delegating. And after reading a book, I just, I just made a commitment, I guess. It just made sense to me to master this. So what I did is I, I first made a list of every single action I do in a day over a period of about a one to three month period. I thought of all the actions that might occur in my daily life during a one to three year, a three month period. In, in so doing it, I had a pretty exhaustive list of every single thing that might occur during the week in my life. Mm. I then divided it up into personal and professional things that I did at home versus things I did at work even though sometimes I do things at home about work and vice versa. But I divided up under personal and professional. Then what I did is I wrote out to the side of it to the best of my ability using extrapolation to write down how much does it actually produce per hour. And that was a real eye opener. So if I'm going and let's say I'm doing an exam with a patient and I'm spending 15 minutes doing an exam at $125. That means four times 125 would be $500 an hour. So I put $500 an hour for GAMS. If I'm doing radiographic evaluations and it takes 10 minutes to do a radiograph, and again, it's now $100, that would be $600 an hour. If I'm doing um, a, a report of findings and I'm going over that and it's $25 for four minutes, then I'd multiply that times 15 times $25 and I'd get an idea what that's worth per hour. And I, I went through every single thing that I did in a day in my practice, from doing narratives to reports to everything I did as a professional. And I made a list of that, and I saw that there were some things that produced way more income. The actual offices that working with the patients could go up to $1,500 an hour, and down below it was much less, 400 300 600 And some things I was doing, I was getting nothing. Mm. And I... I, I, I reprioritize according to what produced the most. I was then astonished that the highest producing thing that I could do, which was not even in my expectations at the time, was to go out and view a presentation to an audience to engage them in considering working on their health. 
And I found that if I did that, I could generate 15,000 an hour, 20,000 an hour. And I was astonished at that. I was going, whoa, I'm actually in my office after 10 years of training to be a clinician. I'm actually doing something that's producing one-tenth of what my potential is. That was a real, real shaker. But then I started looking at it, and I prioritized the entire thing from that which produced the most per hour down to that which produced the least, even zero per hour. Mm. And I had to make a decision. Do I want to start charging that? That's my time. And I actually did start charging for it. But after going through there, I next to that, I wrote down how much meaning is each of those actions on the one to 10 scale. Give me now meaning because some things are so inspiring and so meaningful to me that I'll sacrifice a little profit because it's just, I love doing it. <clears throat> so I would sometimes go to, to schools and talk to kids and inspire kids. And I wasn't always getting paid for that, but it was, it's a thinking of the future and inspiring kids because it meant something to me. So I prioritize meaning now on the same list. Then next to it, I wrote another list, another column. How much would it cost me for every cost from depreciation schedule, equipment depreciation, um, the salaries, space usage, uh, insurance, everything. Every single cost, if I was to hire somebody and they were to, I was to delegate it to them, they were to do it to the same standard. And I mean the same standards I, or greater. And then the next, last column is how much time do I actually spend on these? And that gave me a better way to extrapolate. And I wrote that entire thing out and I looked at that and I prioritize it by meaning. I prioritize it by productivity per hour. I prioritize it by how much would it cost to delegate. And then I looked at where all three of those things were prioritized, where the highest producing, most meaningful, and the most cost spread on delegation was. And I reprioritized the whole thing accordingly. And then I made a commitment to take 10% and create a job description with that 10% and knock off 10% of what I was doing. And I got that done and delegated. It took me about two months to get that done, delegated, where somebody's doing that. Well, that freed me up to make way more income because I just knocked off an hour and a half to two hours of my day right there. And that allowed me to go out and do more talks, allowed me to see more patients, easily paying for that difference. So it never costs to properly delegate. Hmm. It costs to unwisely hire somebody who's not engaged, not doing the things that you could be free to do, higher priority things that produce more income, and that you're not actually going and doing the thing that produces more income. Hmm. That's when it costs. But delegation properly done is never going to cost you. So you can do that from the beginning. Then what's interesting is I went out there and I did the next 10% once that was done. And over the next three years, I had everything delegated off my plate. It took about three years to get everything. I mean, most of it was done really within a year, but within three years, it was, it was done. And I haven't done anything other than research, write, travel, teach now since. I've, I've let go of the rest. I have had experts come in to do all the rest who love doing it, do the things that I don't really have a desire to do. Because anytime you're doing things that are lower on the value list, that devalue your time, you devalue yourself. And you know it. Because I used to know that when I was doing certain aspects of my clinical practice, my mind was, I want to go do patients because it produced more. And then I, once I learned that I, if I go out and speak, I produce even more, I then hired five doctors to do the clinical work. And then I hired assistants to do the other. I had 12 people helping that. Mm. And in 18 months, I went from a 970 square foot office with myself and one assistant 
So 12 staff members, five doctors, and I was out there generating it with television and radio and newspapers, and magazines and speaking. I was generating the clinic and it was producing way more income. And it liberated me from having to do any of the more detailed stuff. And then when I did, I would come back and I'd have specialized hours for the highest quality, most influential patients that really enjoyed working with that were having global influence in the oil industry or whatever the industry was at the time um, or celebrities that I worked with. Mm. So I found that by prioritization and delegation, I liberated myself from self-depreciation, procrastination, and it, it liberated me to go off and produce more income and build a brand. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's really powerful. And that kind of links into uh, where I want to take things in the sense of someone that's watching this, even myself, you know, that's a, it's, it's so inspiring to be able to hear all that. And it's not like it's a, but however, it's so important to go back to the values. And if you do not have a value high on business or serving people, then you're not going to have the, be inspired to go out and talk and, and, and to want to serve people. So that kind of transitions kind of back a little bit into how, so my definition of what I think an entrepreneur is, Dr. Martini, is an entrepreneur is someone that sees a problem in society that they would love to solve that people are willing to pay for. Right. So I'm not too sure what your say definition of it is, but because I'm a lot on the online space, there's so much effective marketing now with, um, you know, create information products, do the affiliate marketing, just this, 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 and this. And I'm sure you've seen all of it over the years, but what I'm, what I'm trying to, um, I don't necessarily want to be the big flash guy either as far as trying to sell people the dream. I'm so stuck now more because I can't go back because of your work is the truth. This is, this is the, uh, you see once in an interview, um, by the time rumors are spread, I think across the world, the truth is just starting to put on its shoes or, or something like this. So, so how do people go from before even taking your inspiration of I've grew my practice to this and they're wanting to go into entrepreneurship? What's the first step? Like, how do you even identify, are you an entrepreneur? Is it because you want to solve a problem? Is it because you try, you're, you're, you want the lifestyle? Like, how does someone even determine that they are an entrepreneur? Well, if you, if you don't have a desire to get up and be of service to people and are willing to do whatever it takes to bring that service to people, and when I mean serving people, serving people implies and depends on you meeting a need that has a, a need in the market. I mean, if you're, if you're pushing uphill somebody to buy something that they don't feel they need, and you haven't established a need, you're wasting your time, you're gonna drive yourself crazy, you're gonna be narcissistically projecting assumptions onto the market. Mm. And that is self-defeating and self-depreciating because you're gonna you're gonna think there's something wrong with you when it just means you didn't hit meet the market's needs. So you, there's, a, there's an obvious equity between your needs and the, the market needs. If you try to go and meet the market needs and it's uninspiring to you, and you don't wanna get up in the morning and do that action, and it's meaningless, you'll go into your amygdala and you may make a lot of money, but you'll end up being a debaucherous individual that basically blows it on immediate gratifications because you're not having something in the executive center that's meaningful that you can't wait to get up and do. At the same time, if you're doing something that's purely inspiring to you, but it doesn't match a market need, you're, you're going to be enthusiastic initially, but you're going to eventually burn out because there's no sales. So you have to find that medium between those. So your definition is a, is a clear definition. 
going and finding something that's a need in the marketplace and doing it, but not just picking it. Oh, that's, I, I know everybody needs that. I think I'll sell that because then you're not inspired to do it. You want to find out where there's an overlap. They called it the vesica Pisces where the sphere of influence of your life overlaps the sphere of influence of the market and find out where that niche is that you can't wait to get up and do, and they can't wait to get it. And that's, that's, you take some thinking, you know, uh, I know some people that go on Google search or they go place and they look at what people are looking for and find out where there's the biggest demand. And then they go and try to find who's providing that demand and they're taking a cut out of it through some sort of affiliate arrangement. And that's effective. Many people made a lot of money doing that because they're delivering the best service, but they're not necessarily the people that are delivering the service. They're just mediating those two. And that's a viable business. But personally, I would rather have a, a business that I can't wait to get up and do. So I have meaning in my day mm. and I love for what I do. I think it stops the aging process. I'm 65 in a few months and most people don't think I'm 65. Yeah. But th that's because I do something I love every day. I don't have to work. I'm financially independent. I do it because I love working. I love doing what I do. Mm. And I had a dream to do that when I was very young and I worked to do that and I learned how to do that and everybody's capable of doing that. Mm. But you do have to care about humanity. I, I was speaking oh, a few years ago at a church and, uh, and I, I figured, you know, I'm in a, a lot of people in this church are living in fantasies. Here. I'm, I think I'm going to be the bad guy. I'm going to be the devil's advocate here and I'm just going to shatter some myths here today. And it was just something I, I guess I was vindictive that day. And I said to him, I said, if you're poor, it's because you don't care about humanity. And I just let that sink in. And people were like going, whoa. Now, there were some relatively well-off people in the room, but the majority of those people were not doing well. And uh, I said, now stop and think about it. If you're not serving people, it's unrealistic to expect to have income. And, it's, and if you're not serving a great, ever greater numbers of people, don't expect an acceleration of income and don't expect to have a lot of income to be able to save and invest. So the question that you want to ask yourself, and we're going to take a moment to think about it. What is it that you are absolutely inspired to do that's a talent? Write them all down. Ones that you spontaneously can't wait to do. And then let's write down what are the needs in society that we know for a fact. We don't speculate. We don't guess. We don't presume. The things we see evidence of people doing that you really would be inspired to compete in and to grab the market in and make them stop and think. Because if they're thinking about their problems all day and they're not thinking about solutions to problems of other people, there's no entrepreneur there. Mm. So if you're not seeing that in your head, don't expect to get wealthy and get ahead that way as an entrepreneur. Hubert Hal Bancroft in his book, you know, the book of wealth said that one of the, there are three things that were common to the wealthiest people in the world. One, they felt it was by divine providence or human sovereignty that they were destined to serve vast numbers of people. I have some of that in my life. I felt that I, had, I deserve to serve vast numbers of people. I've, and I've hit 5.2, almost 3 billion people as a result of that, with some sort of outreach. Mm. Media, television, newspapers, magazines, books, movies, whatever. So I had had a dream about that since I was 17. If you don't have a desire to be of service to people, I wouldn't, I'd go get a secure job. Because <laughs> you need to have a drive to want to go and serve people and overcome the challenges that it takes to serve people. And if it's not high enough on your values, you'll stop the second it gets challenging. The second one is that you want to you raise the standard of people in society, not just serve them, 
and meet their needs, but to actually contribute to the overall elevation of the standard of society. That's been found common to them. And that's by investing in an ever higher quality of things and making sure you surround yourself with the finest to give incentives for an escalation in every industry to go up. Mm. If, there's, if there's nobody investing in the highest quality of art, highest quality of chef, highest quality of uh, any form of business, the standards will plateau and there'll be no growth in the economy. So you have to think globally in that respect to think of how do I serve the economy in addition to individual needs. And the third thing is that to transcend any moralities associated with money. As long as you think money is good and you're infatuated with it or bad and you resent it, don't expect to have it because that means you don't have governance over it. A person has governance over money doesn't see it as either good or bad. It sees it as a measuring system of services rendered and managed wisely. And the net worth is a reflection of how well you serve people, manage that with efficiency and invest in it because you want to be able to, your goal by financial independence is not to how wealthy you are. The goal is to be able to go and produce enough income, save enough and invest enough where you are able to go and do something you love without having to work. So you go to work because you love to and you got the income and then to grow greater causes and have ever greater causes to grow your wealth for a purpose of serving not just yourself, not just your family, your, but your community, your city, your state, your nation, or your world, and be thinking and contributing through exemplification of what's possible with the mastery of money. That's, mm. mm. uh, Jesus, so much. People have to go back and watch this recording over and over, just like I do all your other videos. They're just packed full of so much good information. I wrote down a couple of questions here that was... Um, two reflections one was around uh well, a quote from tony robbins tony robbins who had said um success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure and he goes on by saying how because at least if you if you don't succeed and you fail at least you'll be like oh well i can keep trying so you don't have the necessarily unfulfilled but actually achieving something and not being fulfilled well that's the ultimate failure because you think that you've hit you think you've hit mount everest but you're like, oh, it's not what I expected. So that's a huge part on what you mentioned before, where some people search on Google, for example, what's some good businesses, that's one option. And then you mentioned another option around doing something that you're actually inspired by, why you look maybe 45, not 65, or much younger again. John, would you mind mentioning the story around um, the lady that you helped with her, her, she was in, I believe she was something 45, 55 like this, and she was inspired to dance. And now she has uh, tours around the world, I believe, teaching people with her Latin dancing or something like this. Yeah. Now, I wish I could say that I've kept up with her. I haven't seen her in a few years, so I don't know exactly what's happening today. Right. But what happened is this is a lovely woman that attended a program that I was in in Quebec City, Quebec, Canada. And as at Stoneham, which is a resort up there, which is a ski resort. And... Um, it was at a house right next to it. And we were doing this program and um, we've discovered that she absolutely loved what she loved doing is dancing. Now, when you first looked at the woman, she was a bit on the large size and you wouldn't anticipate her being an agile dancer. But surprisingly, she actually had tremendous lib uh, you know, uh, flexibility and limberness and was quite good, just a larger. So it didn't match the typical look of a dancer, you know, professional dancer, you'd see. 
But she said, that's what I love doing. I do it every day. I dance in the morning. I dance to music throughout the day. I just love dancing, dancing, dancing. And she says, I go to ballroom dancing. I do this dancing. And every opportunity I get to do, I just dance. If I'm with a man or without a man, I, I find a man and I dance. And I said, so what is it you would absolutely love to do in life? She said, well, I love dancing. I said, well, then why don't we make an entrepreneurial adventure out of that? And she thought, well, how do I do that? She never even thought of how she could ever make a business out of that. And we got thinking and we got uh, creative and we found a way of organizing a tour. The first tour was uh, into Spain because she loved flamenco dancing. And so what happened is she uh, organized a group of people to come to, to uh, Spain. She contacted the leading dancers there and looked at the performances there and created a a, a vacation, you might say, or an adventure where people are going to go and see the greatest performers, meet them, get trained by them and see their performances and go out and have dining and touring and this experience. And, but, but it's mainly revol revolving around meeting the greatest dancers and actually watching them and having dinner with them. And they, what she did is she costed it all out, found out what the costs were, where the, point breaks were if all of a sudden you get 10 and 20 and 30 people or whatever. And as long as she had at least 12 people, she was going to start getting discounts and the free tickets and this, you know, free hotels and things. And she organized it and she didn't net the first time, but about $4,500, but she made $4,500 doing what she loved to do, which was taking people on dancing tours and meeting the most amazing dancers and taking pictures with them and dancing with them and going and having whining and dining and going to performances. She said to me that that was one of the most amazing things in her life when she realized that she could actually get handsomely and beautifully paid to do exactly what she loved to do. And at first it was a little bit tedious. She had to do a lot of homework, a lot of things, a lot of anxieties and stresses about it. And I, well, people are going to actually come. And she would then go out and meet people at the ballroom dancing places and start talking to people and engage them and let them know what she's doing and let them know about the events and stuff. And she found out that there was a waiting list of people doing that, wanting to do it. There was no shortage of people that wanted to go on these adventures. She really put together beautiful adventures that were so appealing. So now she met their needs. She met her own needs and she made money doing what she loved to do. The most she made in a month was $117,000. Now that's a number of years since I've talked to her. But $117,000 in a month, taking people on dancing tours is like unbelievable yeah. to go dancing. But that's the creative entrepreneurial spirit. Because what she did is she was able to arrange three of them with other three dancers that she showed how to do that. And then she had a team of doing it. And they were putting on events in different locations at the same time. Mm. And she was actually getting larger numbers and getting more coordinated as it went along. And it, it's just amazing what can be done if you ask the right questions, we know that the quality of our lives is based on the quality of the questions. Yes. Cause that brings the unconscious information to consciousness. Mm. You, you literally just took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, if you want different results, ask yourself different questions. And um, yeah. So the, the reason why I wanted you to bring up that story was because I mean, that's just one of so many different stories that I've heard um, people come through your breakthrough experience and, and have. So that's why I want you to share that one. But Another one that I want, just want to quickly touch on here, Dr. Martini, is around, so again, I'm trying to take people through this journey of 
first you must start with your values, at least know yourself, know your values. Then it's, you need to know, are you an entrepreneur? Is there a problem that you're inspired to solve? Um, where does fear come into it, come into things? So obviously I've, I've experienced this. I believe everyone experiences, experiences this, experiences this over their, their uh, evolution of themselves and awareness. But if fear is stopping someone from taking action, um, how do we overcome fear? What is it? What's it look like? Well, fear by definition is an assumption that you're about to experience in the near or far future with your imagination or senses, more pains and pleasures, more losses and gains, more negatives and positives, more challenges and supports, more disadvantages and advantages through, your, through from somebody or yourself. And so that means you have a perception there's going to be more drawbacks and benefits. That's all. Mm -hmm. If you have an assumption that there's um, more benefits and drawbacks in the future, you have kind of a fantasy. You have a philia, not a phobia. And uh, the reason why people have fear. Now, most people think, oh, I got to get rid of my fears. I got to stop my fears. Oh, I don't want to have to live in fear. I don't have that perspective. I, I used to. But about 34 years ago, I broke through that. I realize now fear is one of your greatest friends. And I'm going to say that again in case somebody is knocked off their seat. Yeah. Fear is one of your greatest friends. And I'm going to reframe it. So if everybody hears this, it will be helpful, I promise. Fear is letting you know that you're pursuing something that is either polarized with all the upsides and you're blind to the downsides and your fear is coming in to make you aware of them. So you can plan more effectively and mitigate them or that you're pursuing something that's lower on your values. And this is usually simultaneous because anytime you're doing something that's high on your values, you will see all the obstacles as on the way, not in the way. And anytime you're doing something that you're going to procrastinate on, you're going to hesitate on. So the key is to make sure that you're pursuing things objectively. The word objectivity means balanced even-minded, not subjectively, which is biased or partial-minded. So if you're pursuing a goal, a difference between a goal and a fantasy or an objective and a fantasy is a fantasy has got all the positives without the negatives planned out. You don't think about the negatives. You say, oh, I just want to be positive thinking, and I don't want to think of all the downsides that can occur. And the second you pursue it, you're designed intuitively to come up with the anxieties and fears that you haven't planned and worked through and strategized through to how to solve them. So they come up automatically. And the same thing when you have uh, something that's an objective now, it has you, that means you're planning everything that can go wrong by asking what obstacles could occur in advance and how do I prepare for them and mitigate the risks. And now you're, no, have, you don't have any anxiety. There's no fear because you thought them through and you thought, I now know what to do with them. If they come, I know how to break through them. I had to, how to reduce the probabilities of them because you have foresight. Humans have the ability to have foresight and planning Animals have hindsight. They learn by trial and error. Mm -hmm. So they're more fear-oriented, of a fear of predators and fantasy of prey. Alec McKenzie in his time trap showed very clearly that the people who are the most achieving are the people that have the greatest foresight, the most planning, the most delegating, and they're mitigating the risk. The executive center in the forebrain is designed to foreplan ahead and to transform a strategic planning to mitigate the risks so you turn fantasies into real goals, real objectives. Mm. And what people do is they go after it and they think, oh, I'm going to go out and become an entrepreneur. That guy's making fortune. 
you live in a fantasy what that means. You think it's all good because you have a delusion about money. And you think, oh, I want to do that. I want to have the rich and famous life. If you're focusing on what they're dressed like, if you're focusing on what they're driving, what the house they have and things like that, you're already a sign that you're not really committed to the outcome. You're distracted by the lifestyle of spending money, not the commitment of serving people and saving and investing money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the second you are pursuing that, if you stop and ask, okay, what are every single thing that could be challenging and an obstacle? And how do I solve that in advance? How do I either reduce the probability of it, or if it happens, how do I know exactly what to do? And how do I turn that and spin it in a way that gets me closer to my goal? Mm. If you do all that out and you see it clearly in your mind, your executive center will see an inspired vision. It'll see you right through with its strategy, how to get to where it does. The fears are gone because mm. you pre-planned the challenges instead of unplanned the challenges and got sideswiped by. Mm. But fear is your friend. It's letting you know that you're not complete in your plan, you're pursuing a fantasy, and you're not really congruent with what's truly objective in your life, your highest value. That's all it is. So I'm not against fear. I'm grateful for fear. It's letting me know that I have unrealistic expectations on myself, and I haven't done my due diligence in my forebrain, and I'm acting like an animal with an impulse to a fantasy, and I'm trying to avoid a predator. Yeah, and you, and you really nailed it on the head there with the whole you know, they're attracted to what someone's wearing or the car or the house. And it's amazing with, even with myself or in the past, how many people still say, um, you know, I earned this much money uh, and then I was so unfulfilled, but there's still so many people that hear that and go, well, let me figure it out for myself. Let me, let me get to the top of the mountain first and find out that, yeah, I'm unfulfilled and then I'll work on being fulfilled. Right. Okay. That's a very big one. I, I, I had a, I had a pretty interesting experience when my wife was alive we um she was writing for a magazine called star newspaper and they owned uh, a number of the tabloids there's one man that owned three tabloids now this was making around oh 75 million dollars a year in personal income so that's pretty good money and uh what's interesting is we would go and uh, have a meeting with him because he, for some reason, liked my wife. Um, and he, on average, was drinking within a two-hour lunch, 18 drinks. 18 drinks. Wow. Now, I'm, uh, I've, I've had one glass of wine in 46 and a half years, so I'm, I'm his antiparticle. Yeah. But um, the guy was probably one of the most miserable drunks I'd ever met. Okay, now, here's a guy that made money serving people's needs, the masses, but had no meaning. Mm -hmm. And see, the executive center comes online when you're doing something that's inspiring, it's highest on your value, where meaning is. Your highest value is once called by the ancient Greeks, uh, Greeks, the telos. And the telos, the study of telos or teleology is a study of meaning and purpose. So if you don't have a purpose that's extremely meaningful, that inspires you when you're doing your work, when you make a lot of money without meaning, you go down into the amygdala, not the executive center, and you look for immediate gratification. So people who do that, they typically spend their money on lifestyle and quick at rich schemes and quick at fix things and quick pleasures, and it's hedonistic. And it's the pursuit of that which is unobtainable and trying to avoid that which is unavoidable, which leads to the debauchery life. 
and this guy was obviously, uh, you know, surrounding himself with girls of third his age, <laughs> literally. And um, he was looking for the, the, the fancy life. Now, there are people that look at him and go, man, he's a wealthy guy. Look at him. He's got all the pretty girls and all that stuff. He's a miserable guy. And, and I was so grateful to meet someone like that that was had debauched life. And, um, and this is like the wolf on Wall Street kind of thinking, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I've, I've met him, too. I can say oh, that there's, there's an interesting similarity anyway. Yeah. Now, then you meet someone like um, Warren Buffett who's now 89 years old, I believe. And he, um, he goes to work. He loves what he's doing. He tap dances to work. He's uh, growing his wealth. He's still working. He, he, he really enjoys his research. He really enjoys his interviews. You can see that he's alive and inspired. And just to, to see him in a debauched state would be not likely. The same for uh, Bill Gates. So finding something that's extremely meaningful that serves vast numbers of people uh, is a, a formula for a more fulfilled life. Mm. And you are going to ask yourself at the end of your life, are you fulfilled too? And I, and my observation, because I'm, I've been doing it a bit of time now and I meet a lot of people along the way and I can see this pattern going over the people that are wanting immediate gratification and want to get rich quick, uh, wanting to get that uh, fast paced thing or whatever, fancy girls, fancy drugs, fancy this, whatever. I see that pattern and I see also the people that are doing something that inspiring and are meaningful that just keep methodically doing it. And if I look at the two, that may look good, but deep down inside, when I actually interview and interact with them and consult with them, the fulfillment level is lower. So I'm a firm believer in doing something that serves vast numbers of people that inspires you. You can still get extremely wealthy doing it by vastly serving people, but you're going to have meaning with it. And to me, that, that's why I put... What is it that produces the most income and what gives you meaning? Those are both on that list I mentioned. Mm, mm. That's, that's so powerful. And when you look at Warren Buffett, that's, I mean, his life's demonstrated that ever since uh, being a young, young boy in Omaha, right? Studying books on wealth. I mean, his life's demonstrated it. And that's been his he, life. he has a high value on mastering and learning how to, you know, manage money. Yeah. That's his love. I, I, I was, um, in New Zealand speaking a number of years back, and I had lunch uh, with one of the gentlemen that was attending the program. I had about 200 people attending my program on personal wealth building. And um, the advertisement didn't have the picture of my yacht that I live on, didn't have the picture of the penthouses, didn't have the picture of any of those things on it. It was for those that are serious about building wealth. That's it. <laughs> because I didn't want the people they want the fancy lifestyle. I want the people that are really truly having a value on wealth building. They're the number crunchers. Mm. Warren Buffett's a number cruncher. And I think he lived in a simple house and drove a beat up old car for many years. He did, that wasn't his focus. It wasn't needing to show anything. It was not pretentious. pretentious. Mm -hmm. And there was another guy there that was, uh, had the other type of personality and you could see him disinterested in knowing all the numbers he was interested in how to have a lifestyle and i and i saw them in the room and i pointed out the differences and i interviewed them in the room to try to make my point and i also showed that one had 750 million and the other one had money that went up and down and up and down and was rich and then he ended up having to sell things and it was a volatile experience so 
I always define uh, a millionaire as somebody that has at least 10 million because you're not a millionaire until you can actually lose a million without an emotion or gain a million without an emotion. So it's what you can manage without an emotion that you really own. I wrote that in Jet Set Magazine, which is one of the magazines I write for. Mm. And uh, so if you have 100 million, you're now a decamillionaire. If you have uh, now a thousand million, a billion dollars, you're now a centimillionaire. And that calms down the kind of the, the thing because it lets you know what you're really capable of handling the volatilities of. And you're more likely to manage it wisely when you're thinking in a more conservative fashion that way. Mm. I think Warren Buffett says it really nice. I think he's worth 85 billion right now. Uh, until you can manage emotions, don't expect to manage money. And as long as you're infatuated or resentful to money, it runs you. When you finally love the management of money, that doesn't mean infatuate with it, but love it and know how to master serving people and investing it wisely and being methodical and patient. Warren Buffett is a very patient man. He may wait months or months and months before he actually buys something because he wants to make sure he's putting his money into something that goes up in value. You know a person values wealth building by making sure that they don't buy things that go down in value. They buy things that go up in value. That's that simple. People that have a low value on money buy consumables that are media gratifying, that are brands that are overpriced, that take their money, and they go down in value the second you buy them. And people that have a value on wealth building will buy things that go up in value. One that puts money in their pocket, as Kiyosaki said, versus takes it out of your pocket. Yeah. And I, 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 people, I just watch people take a long time before they get the common sense stuff finally in their head. Yeah. Yeah. And how, I want to be respectful of your time because we're now nearly hit, hit an hour. But I must just quickly uh, put this little note in here for the viewers that, you know, I've been studying John's work, uh, I say a long time, it's not really a long time, you know, two, three years, uh, got his books, been to breakthrough experience, been to master planning. And what I've kind of experienced is um, that it can be a spe well for me it was kind of information overload and, and I started to get overwhelmed. I started to compare myself to Dr. Martini because I had similar ambitions with certain things. But it is so important, just like if you go to a gym every day and if you wanted to have a look like a certain way or, or be a certain strength, you need to train it every day. And a big thing that it was a hard lesson to learn but eventually did was that if you're going to set some goals, they need to have metrics and timelines and you need to work in, on it every day, whether it be gratitude or whatever it happens to be. It needs to become this daily practice. So um, with that said, Dr. Martini, thank you so much for your time. But as far as um, for where, where people can kind of find you, I mean, I know you don't necessarily believe in like, let's just say a quick shortcut, but if someone did want to kind of immerse themselves more and they wanted to... Um, they read through the book or they're a quick consumer, what would be the, the number one um, seminar to kind of go to would you recommend of yours? Well, first I would say that it'd probably be to anyone's advantage to, to go to the website first, drdmartini.com, drdmartini.com, D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com, drdmartini.com. And go to the value determination process section. There's a complimentary little exercise, takes about 30 to 40 minutes that you can go through there and do it as objectively as you can. 
if you lie to yourself and you write down what you fantasize about or what you wish your self would be or what you used to be or what you hoped you'd be or what you think it should be, and don't write down the true answers, you're just self-defeating. But write down as objectively as possible the answers to 13 simple questions. It will be eye-opening, and then maybe a week from now or a month from now, do it again. And do it a few times until you see the pattern that you feel clear and certain that's what I'm committed to. Because it'll reveal to you a hierarchy of values of what's really important to you. Once you understand that, you'll know it's a waste of time to do anything other than what's really most important and highest. If you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, your day fills up with low priority distractions that don't, to try to get you feedback to let you know you're not being authentic. The universe works to help you. If they do that, that will be the first thing I could encourage people to do. It won't cost them anything, it'll just help them start the journey. As far as a seminar, if they can come to the breakthrough experience, I really believe that that will be an eye-opener for any human being that would come to that program. I've had them at all different ages. Um, many of them are on I had a girl that started there at six and seven and is best-selling author and has three books out. She's 12 today. So I, I, it doesn't matter what age it is, but there is a, there is, that program can help people break through a lot of constraints. And I'm absolutely certain because I've got a good track record with it. If I ask people at the end of the seminar, how many of you learned something this weekend that you could have gone your whole life and probably never learned except right here? Every hand goes up week after week after week. So I really believe it's informative. It's innovative. It's uh, it's original thinking and information that I've been gleaning for 46 years of research. It can help people break through things in their life. So that would be the place to start. Mm, that's awesome. And, and for anyone that's uh, still here, the, uh, the one that is so powerful and the one that made me take the most action over so many years was the values factor, which I don't have the hard copy. I've just got the audio book, but is the inspired destiny because I found it was self-worth, procrastination, perfectionism, and fear. And as I started working on those, I would just take, I'd take action. So seriously, get the books. I'll put all the links um, below this interview where you can find it. John, also, if you cannot, uh, if you can't make one of John's seminars for whatever reason coming up, um, Dr. Martini also has online courses. I've also done the Business Mastery, five days Business Mastery on there. Fantastic, fantastic for entrepreneurs getting started as well. You can watch it at your own pace, make notes. So with all that said, John, uh, hopefully you bring out another book soon so I can have you back on the show. But um, so thank you so much for your time for leaving a legacy and uh, of being such a huge impact um, here on this earth. Well, thank you for so much for the opportunity to do the show and, and uh, we'll work together as entrepreneurs trying to do more service. Indeed. Thank you very much, John. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Cheers.